Welcome to All the Things with Monique Dusan from the Center for Biblical Unity and theology mom, Krista Bontrager. And now, here's Krista and Monique. And welcome to All the Things. I am Monique Dusan. And I'm Krista Bontrager, also known as Theology Mom. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe you're moving away from Theology Mom. I have no <laughs> idea. It's the last couple of shows, she's been like, I'm just Krista Bontrager. Oh. Like, something we need to talk about before the family. And this is the show where we discuss... All the things related to God, life, and the Bible. <laughs> trying to keep it moving, people. You got... Well, I was asking a question. All right. You see? All right. And... Helping us on the show tonight, and... Every day, every moment, Bob Bontrager. Uh, there he Hello. Is. Big shout out to Bob for all that he does with Theology Mom and Center for Biblical Unity and all the things. He's kind of all the awesome. Yes. yes you know what's is. happening in two weeks? Yes. What? I don't know. I'm just playing. <laughs> we are going to premiere the promo video for the new Reconciled curriculum. Yes, it's going to be the promo video that goes around the world. It will be. So if you haven't yet uh, found out about the small group curriculum that Monique's been working on the last six or seven months, however long. This has long. been a family project, not just a Monique project, <laughs> y'all. However long you've been doing y'all, this. Y'all, it, this has involved everyone. So it's called Reconciled. You can go to... CenterForBiblicalUnity.com backslash reconciled. See what I did there? And um, get that. Pre- Now's the time to pre-order. It's a great time to think about who people want to invite into their small group. Like, yeah. do you want to do it as your family devotions? Yeah. Do you want to do it as a small group? Do you want to get some friends together on Zoom and um, do it? that way so you can see some of the uh sessions we cover there we're gonna talk about identity and family and unity yes so and the myth of racial reconciliation and the endorsements have been coming in yes it's awesome we have an endorsement from alisa childers my favorite auntie um jay warner wallace virgil walker, walker carol swain yep. um edwin ramirez I feel like the family just came together. That's right. The family has come together. Natasha Crane. Yeah. Yeah. Clay Jones. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And then um, the foreword was written by my uncle J.P. Moreland. He don't know. I call him my uncle, but you know. (laughs) Sorry. Some things you just got to attach and hold into your heart. Well, you have his phone number, so I think it's okay if you call him uncle. Yes. Called him yesterday. Uncle, I did. I need I, some advice. I did. I had to call the uncle yesterday. I was like, uncle, I need some advice because we'll talk about that later on yeah. in the show. So uh, we want to invite everyone to join us on the live chat and add your voice to the conversation. You can do so on YouTube or on a Facebook. And uh, the jean, ger- jean jacket is like the superhero cap. Cape. Cape. I think uh, right. maybe it could be, you know. I like that. Yes. I like what you're thinking there. Yes. Jean jacket Saturday. Yes. I was going to wear a different jacket. Well, we both came down the stairs and had gray shirts on. So I threw on my jacket to look a little different. But then she went and got her jacket. So I did. You you know, I won't even talk about why I brought my jacket. But that's all right. <laughs> that's T- all right. Tonight's moderators are Jeremy Webb and 
Ms. Laura Hartley. What's up, you guys? Thanks for all you do. So and please help us by sharing the show. This is the part of uh, audience participation. The best way to help support what we do is to share the show, to like, hit that thumbs up, and to comment. Because all of those things tell the robots on social media to push out our content against their will. Yes. All right. And the show is brought to you tonight by Family 210 Clothing. That's right. Center for Biblical Unity and Theology Mom. And we have a new um, design tonight. I love that. I might need to get that created to rain. Yours yours truly. Oh, okay. Look at you. Go ahead. That's my first design. Look at you. Yeah. Comes in a variety of colors. There's a hoodie version and a unisex t-shirt. Women's shirt. Go ahead. Yes. I felt like I was doing big things today. Good for you. Oh, Edwin Ramirez is. Oh, yeah. We have a new website with a real domain. Yes. Family210.com. So you can order your stuff there. You can even get Center for Biblical Unity stuff there. That's right. I'm just saying we're everywhere, you guys. (laughs) Now, Edwin Ramirez is in the chat. And I just want to say hello to the cousin. Now, you listen. I didn't get a chance to listen to it yet. I saw that. um, I saw it. I saw um, that he released, uh, he released the, what do you call it? A new video, but you said that you really enjoyed it. So give him a shout out and maybe um, tell people what it's about. Yeah, it was a great stream. And when I I listened to it today, uh, it was called, this is not biblical preaching. Mm -hmm. And he was just breaking it all the way down for on a, it was a clip off of woke preacher clips, but it was an extended clip of a sermon and Edwin just did a great job of breaking it all down uh, bit by bit and helping people detect the the woke theology coming through the sermon and kind of what I call the shell game or the sleight of hand mm-hmm. that these preachers do. Like you think they're kind of in the text and all of a sudden, whoop, we're over here. Uh-huh. We're in Off the, the cliff. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Great job, Edwin. Uh, I want to encourage everyone to go check out that stream. Again, it's called um, This Is Not Biblical Preaching. Yes, and you can find him at The Proverbial Life. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. So. All right. So tell us about, did we get through all the announcements? Oh, we did it. We did. I'm just waiting on you. Sorry. Just, you know. Sometimes, <laughs> uh, you know, today was a really good day. What was it? What did you do? Oh, y'all. Okay. We we need to bring Melissa on. But today, so my doctor told me I need to lose 20 pounds. And I was like, you're not telling me nothing new. I already know this. So I went and got a, a I already had a membership at you got the gym a, membership. Gym, a gym membership. A couple I, weeks ago. Cut, yeah. In preparation. So, cause I knew the doctor was going to be like, you need to lose 20 pounds. So I wanted to tell her like, Oh, I already got a membership. And she was like, honey, you need to use it. I was like, Oh, you dirty. <laughs> you dirty. And so I went to the gym today and I took a Zumba class and I haven't had any Zumba. I haven't worked out or anything Done in dance. three years since I've been home. I haven't done anything. About I've only half, walked. Yeah. yeah, two and a half. Y'all, 
this 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 class almost killed me. I was called, sending out SOS signals. <laughs> I was like, what in the world? And, and the guy who was leading it, he was young. He was probably in his 20s and all chiseled with his little shirt cut open and stuff like that. And woo, yeah. I was like, this ain't me. I mean, you look like a tall glass of water and I look like some spilt chocolate milk. What is going on here? Well, what? And you were texting me during the class and I'm like, How I was you? texting you from my watch. Because, oh. yeah. I was like, how's she texting me? I thought she's jumping around. Woo, that class had me on one. I was like, oh no. Then they they played this song called, um, what's it called? Who was it by? Like, loose, loose my buttons, loosen my buttons or something like that. And I was like, y'all need to zip me up and send me home. It was a mess. <laughs> yeah, I was like, I'm not, oh, oh no, I need to get rid of these 20 pounds so I can, I can move. I was like, you in dance, you do isolations and you can like move just like a certain part of your body. No, I was one, like one just jelloed mold moving all together at the same time. I was like, I used to be able to do isolations. My hips used to move by themselves. Now my hips, my toes, shoulder blade, everything go together. I was like, what in the world is this? All right. Anyway. All right. Are you ready to talk to the guest? Let's do it. Yes. All right. So who are we talking to tonight? Today we're talking to the one and only, the right Melissa, Miss Melissa Tate. All right. And she has a book called Choice Privilege. She actually is like... Super like well known on yeah, Twitter, Twitter and Instagram. Yeah. Um, she is conservative, and she just kind of like says it like, "Bam, there it is. Do with it." <laughs> I like her. I know what I was gonna say. She sounds a little like you. There it is. <laughs> there it is. All right, let's get Melissa on here and talk to her. Hey, Melissa. Hello. <laughs> How are you guys? Good. How are you? Well, thanks for having me on. Well, thanks for agreeing to come on. We appreciate it. Absolutely. And thanks for writing a cool book. Thank you. Yeah. So the name of your book is Choice Privilege. We've got, uh, I want to show it on the screen here for everyone. So if they want to go check it out on Amazon, came out a little earlier this year. What's race got Mm -hmm. to do with it? And so uh, maybe that's a very intriguing title. Maybe tell us a little bit about what that title means. So basically, um, it's a play on the words white privilege, because that's a term that we're now hearing all over the place. So I kind of cross out where it says white and I write in choice because it's really the choices that one makes that determines their destiny and who they are and uh, the quality of life that determines who they are, not the color of their skin. So that's basically the basic premise of the book, but I do go into much deeper themes and conversations within the book, but that's just kind of like the catch catchphrase just to get your attention so you can get more into the book and so forth. So, yeah, so we're going to talk about some of those things that, um, you know, some of the choices that people make that actually mm-hmm. help to increase their, their quality of life. Now right. I, um, I did, well, never mind. I, I lost my train of thought. Let All right, stop. sorry. <laughs> now I don't no, know if fine. many I don't know if many people know, but you were actually born in Zimbabwe. Mm-hmm. Now, yes. what what do you say to people who say like, well, are you really a voice that we should trust, or a voice that has even like right to be in this space because you weren't born and raised here? 
Well, I, I am an American. I've become a naturalized citizen and I'm also black. So I feel qualified to speak on this issue. And then just the whole idea that somebody can't speak to this issue because they're not an African-American or they're not black or whatever, that, that's actually something that comes out of critical race theory. So I don't believe in that. I mean, when you look at people like Joe Biden has been talking about race for all this time, Hillary Clinton talks about it. So everybody talks about race, but I'm not supposed to talk about it. So um, I, I bring a different perspective as somebody who is black, um, who is who comes without the the baggage of, you know, the history and so forth. I have a fresh set of eyes and I look at things differently. So I'm, I'm not here to try and be confrontational or try to you know, uh, act like I have all the answers, but I'm just coming as a humble person, just kind of sharing my perspective or the perspective of African immigrants who come here, you know, with the with the ideals of um, hard work, you know, uh, self-determination, these type of ideas, these are these are very African ideas, you know, so we come here with the and we marry those two. So we marry the hard work, working hard, self-determination with the opportunities that America offers, no matter what color you are. And then we become successful. And that's basically what I, you know, what, what I try to portray in the book is that, you know, you don't have to be uh, a white person. You don't have to be of a certain background to make it in America because a lot of people come here as immigrants with nothing, which is what I did. I came here at the age of 19 with literally nothing but the suitcase that I was carrying, $300 in my pocket. And I worked hard because that's just the way I was raised. You know, my mother taught me that, uh, you know, you get out of life what you put into it. So we were never taught to be victims. We're never taught to like expect anything from anyone. It's you get out of life what you put into it. So that's kind of the attitude that I bring to the United States. Uh, that's the attitude that most Africans bring to the United States and they succeed. So I'm just, you know, trying to look at things in a different perspective from what, you know, the left portrays and, and, and tries to put out there as what the problems are and the solutions. So I, I think that, you know, uh, this was sort of new for me before you and I started interacting. I don't think I had an awareness of sometimes how Africans are looked at by African-Americans. Like, it, 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 there's a bit of a, I don't know how to say it delicately, like, they, they, they're they looked upon differently, you know? Mm -hmm. And, and there's, there can be sometimes some resistance by African-Americans to having somebody who is from Africa. I think Sam say experiences this a lot too as an african immigrant it's like well who are you to to comment on on these issues and i don't know if you have any thoughts about that or yeah. why that is well i think that there is question or conversation as to like the idea of the um, the black american struggle you know, the, the African-American experience. experience and struggle. Yeah, yeah, like experiencing slavery, experiencing um, Jim Crow, like experiencing all of these things that are um, in some ways unique to America, but in some ways injustices, you know, throughout the world. It can just mm -hmm. look different based on the country or continent that you're mm -hmm. on. And so yeah. 
I think that many, um, and I don't know if it's many, some black people, black Americans will, you know, give side eye or, you know, look down on an, a black African who doesn't have the American experience. Have you experienced that? Well, uh, well, I mean, the way I look at it is, you know, everybody has an experience that they can draw on. Because if you uh, look at myself, I come from Zimbabwe, where we had colonization. So my mother, as recently as the generation, like my mother, lived under oppression, racial oppression. Because she was Black, she couldn't walk on a sidewalk. Because she was Black, she couldn't try on certain clothes. Because she was Black, she couldn't work in certain oppressions. So I could literally make that my identity and live my life through that lens of the injustices that might, as recently as my mother, you know, she lived under this. And you will never hear her talk about that because that's, that's not what defines her. You know, that was something that happened in the past. We overcame as a country, we uh, became independent from colonization. Black and white people came together in Zimbabwe and we lived in harmony for many years. And it's not something that, you know, generally people draw on like, okay, so we went through this oppression. So we're gonna, that's, that's what defines us as a people. You know, um, I, I see a lot of people that say, well, this is what they did to us. This is what they did to us. I don't look at it. I don't look at colonization as something that happened to me. You know, it's something that happened to my mother, maybe my grandmother and so forth. But I, I was born free. I was born after independence. So I don't ever look at it like that is, that is me. You know, I look at that as something that was in, unjust that happened in the past, but it's not something that defines me today in 2020 or 2021. So um, that's kind of the message that I like to give people is that you don't have to live in the grievance of the past because you know what, injustice has always existed and it always will because we live in a fallen world. As Christians, we know that we live in a fallen world. So the idea that the only way I'm gonna succeed is if, uh, is if there is no injustice and there is no racism and there is no you know, anything that goes wrong is something that the left wants to wants to propagate because they want people to feel like you have to be in this utopian society in order for you to succeed in life. People overcome injustices. People overcome racism. It doesn't have to control you. So racism doesn't control my life, not because I've never experienced it. I've experienced it from white people. I've experienced it from black, black people in Africa, black people in America. I've experienced it you know, in, in all forms, you know, so it's not something that defines me. I mean, if you just look at even my life in the United States, my husband is white. His family embraced me, his immediate family. And I always joke that they like me more than they like him. But um, his extended family, old school Italian, they don't like the fact that I am black. I've never met most of them. And uh, we actually got a phone call that they didn't want they, they had this family gathering and they didn't want me there because I'm black. So that's not something that I'm like, oh, my goodness, you know, that's now a part of my identity and this racism and whatever, because I, I still live my life. I, my kids still go to good schools. I still pursue my dreams. I still live my life to the fullest. And I just look at people like that, like those are ignorant people and they're actually missing out on knowing somebody who's really cool and really great because of their prejudice. So it's not something that I internalize and it becomes my identity. 
And I think that's the mistake that a lot of people are making because that's what the media and the, uh, you know, the culture is saying that that should be your identity. The fact that there are people out there who hate you, you know, so, so that's kind of, you know, the way I look at things. So. Yeah, that's helpful. And I guess that kind of brings me to a conversation you and I have had uh, over the last couple of years is when we first started interacting, what I noticed with, with you is that you did identify in the beginning when we first started, this isn't where you are now, but you identified with the oppression of your ancestors and that oppression was your oppression. It was your identity. It was like, you know, and one day I remember saying to you like, but you never lived under Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and I said, I'm just, I, I'm just confused. And so for you at the time, there was like almost this oppression by proxy of, of because I wear this skin color, I am oppressed. But Melissa's bringing a very different perspective here. Uh, well, I also so think it's the narrative and, and the stories and, you know, all of that. So generation after generation, like mother, grandmother or grandmother, mother, child, when that's what's told to you all the time, or if that's like more of the, instead of lived, lived experience, lived narrative, you know, that you hear, I think you begin to wear that. So in Melissa's mm -hmm. case, her mother told her a different narrative mm -hmm. of mm -hmm. you can overcome, you can, your choices matter. Uh, there's a life to be lived. Work hard and this is the result. I think that that though, um, to Melissa's point in my travels throughout Africa, that's something that I've seen a lot of, you know, like- um, of, of what she's describing? Yes, okay. so the idea of work. Okay. How, mm -hmm. my gosh, like the miles that people will walk to get to a job and then the miles that they will walk to get home. You know, yes. it's because I have to work. I have to provide for my family. Now that also um, can, can lead into a conversation of like welfare state and things like that. That's not happening down, you know, in, at least in South Africa. And I know in Zambia, that isn't the, the conversation. It's you don't work, you don't eat, you know? So what am I going to do now? I, I have a wife and I have, you know, a kid or kids. And so there's, there's just a different reason I think for, for the ethic. But that kind of reinforces my theory that how, how powerful storytelling is when I hear, Melissa's story and what her mother told her that created mm -hmm. a very distinct mindset for her mm -hmm. of I can overcome, I can work hard, I, you know, and I, I think that storytelling is just extremely powerful. And I don't think African Americans are told that they shouldn't work hard. Right. Yeah. We don't I want think, to imply that. Yeah, yeah. It's because that's not it. It's just the coupling of you or the reason why you must work hard. Like you need to work twice as hard because you want to be as good as the white person so that you can, you know, be qualified or get the job. Like you need to work That's twice as hard kind of because you're yeah. oppressed. Yeah. yeah. So I think we're, we, we are also encouraged to work hard. Definitely. It's just attached yeah. to something else. Yeah. That's good. Melissa, mm -hmm. something you said um, sparked another question for me. You said that <laughs> um, after the colonization uh, or the freedom of Zimbabwe, you know, whites and blacks live together. Is that what you were saying? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I did say that. 
Yeah, I mean, there was still, you know, racial tension as with any community because, you know, racism is just very basic, primitive human nature. It's 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 common in in every culture, you know, so there's always that, you know, that racial tension, even amongst, uh, you know, two tribes in Zimbabwe, you know, that are both black, but there's tension there. So, yeah, so that always existed. But generally speaking, I mean, I went to a school that was, uh, I would say, maybe 90 or 80 percent white. And I had white friends. I mean, uh, you know, blacks and white people just lived, you know, normal lives together post. Uh, and that, that was mainly because even our president at the time, you know, he had said that we need to look not look to the past, but look forward. And we need to come together as a country, whether you're black or white, we're all Zimbabweans and we just need to move forward. So I think that declaration by the leader of the country was 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 very powerful because um, growing up, I never heard narratives about colonization or, you know, like it wasn't part of our um, identity or the fabric of our society or whatever. You know, people were just trying to, you know, work hard and do what they can and get the good jobs and, and live a good life. And, and, you know, we had a great country in Zimbabwe, very capitalist, very, in fact, people moved from all over the, the Southern Africa to come to Zimbabwe because Zimbabwe is a very successful um, capitalist country. So, so I, I enjoyed growing up in Zimbabwe. It was a great place to, to grow up. So now, and I'm going somewhere with this question. Did you guys do any kind of like racial reconciliation kind of national thing? Cause I know South Africa did the, the reconciliation thing and stuff like that after mm-hmm. apartheid and stuff. Did you guys do that? Um, not that I know of. I mean, I was very young when that happened. I think that was 19 years. I was a baby. <laughs> so yeah. So I, I, I don't really have any like recollect recollection of it. And I don't really know any history of a, of an official racial reconciliation, but the president did come out because I have read some speeches that he made post independence, you know, once they won the liberation war, uh, where he talked about unity and re- looking forward and not looking back at colonization and, um, yeah, so so that was kind of the the spirit of the country was just, you know, we need to move forward. And then uh, the the whole society became reintegrated, you know, uh, where it was segregated, where black kids couldn't go to white kids schools. It, it all become it became um, integrated. OK, so. I was I was asking because I know South Africa is generally put forward as like an the, example, an example or the model for racial reconciliation and things like but that. This doesn't seem to have worked out too well. It didn't. But I mean, because they had like this whole reconciliation council and, you know, all of those things. But when you go into South Africa, it is segregated for real. Like it's not it's not a, a place where I would be like, oh, look, it's so multi-ethnic in its integrated. practicality or it really integrated in the way that they walk these things out. And so I, I'm just curious always as to, you know, it, is it something where we need to be, you know, nationally addressing issues of reconciliation or is it more like what I hear you saying is that we're going to look toward the future. We're going to have hearts that are for each other and continuing to model that and put that forward. Yeah. That was just some of yeah. my thoughts about it. 
So some of your critics that I read in, in research for this. Um, yeah. Is, um, you know, one theme that I saw emerging is that a critique of your book is, well, you're just wanting to shift blame in the African-American community from, you know, to say that basically they're for they're to blame for their situation, for their oppression, you know, that it's it's their choice because that's right in the title of your book is, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and so you're you're just basically blaming African-Americans for their whatever fill in the blank, whatever the thing is that they're struggling with, whether that's poverty or lack of education or the school to prison pipeline or whatever that is that you are kind of bringing a narrative with emphasizing choice and responsibility that just blames people for for their situation. Well, I don't see it as blaming. I see it as empowering because you can give white supremacy power. So that means you're giving white supremacy and you're giving some your power to somebody else to control your life. So my message is you can actually be the master of your own destiny and by your choices, you can actually change the trajectory of your life. So to me, that's a message of empowerment that I have the power to change the way I live, to change the results that I get out of my life. And I'm not giving my power to a white person or or a white supremacist or the KKK because I can't live my life saying that, okay, the only way my life is is going to be good is if the KKK stops being the KKK. Mm. <laughs> I'm saying, so you're giving your, your power, the power of your life and your destiny to somebody else who hates you. You know, so uh, so my message is not about blaming. It's, it's actually a message of hope and empowerment that you actually can do something that can actually change your life and make your life a great life based on the choices that you make. Well, what would some of those choices be? Like, you know, I, I think that one thing I, I've heard you talk about it, like some, at least three critical life choices mm-hmm. that can really have an impact on somebody's life and create mm-hmm. a more hopeful future. Yeah, absolutely. So the Heritage Foundation actually did a study and they found out that in the United States, you're 98%, uh, you, you have a 98% chance of, not living in poverty if you just make three basic choices number one is finish high school get a job number two and get married before you have kids so just those three basic choices in america can literally make you eligible completely to be in the middle class so just those three basic choices and those are choices that a lot of people are making and they're those are choices that a lot of people are not making Uh, Marriage is a big one because when you actually look at poverty rates amongst married people in the black community, they're very low. They're almost as low as uh, white people. So when you look at married black couples, they have about on average the same type of economic success as white people. Hmm. Marriage alone, just being married is one choice that you can make that will absolutely transform your life. And it goes back to, you know, God's design. And when we as human beings start to live outside of what God has designed life to be, then we start to see things start going out of whack. So when you look at the the poverty rates within the black community, a lot of it is because 70 to 80% of black people are not married. You know, so um, 
So that is one choice that you can actually make that is actually going to change the trajectory of your life. You know, just one basic choice. Mm. <laughs> she she didn't went in there talking about the black people. Now here we go. <laughs> here we go. All right. So I I what I hear you saying is that there is a level of responsibility that black people and I and I'm I bring up black people um not just because I'm black but because I think in the media and you know the things that we're hearing is about all of the injustices um all, that are happening to black people all of the oppression on black people um, wealth and economic disadvantages and things like that. And so you're saying that if you know, if you would just do these three things right here, get married before you have kids, graduate high school and wait, get, a job. get a job. Yes, that was it. Then you might not suffer the the consequences or the poverty that you grew up in. And mm-hmm. I can, you know, specifically say from my family, I think that that's true in, in all four of our cases. But mm-hmm. I mean, shout yeah. out to your mom yeah, for shout, being shout out to, to Pauline for being a single mom <laughs> with four kids. You guys are all gainfully employed. You've been very successful. You know, it's like mm-hmm. you have you're all living, you know, a, a good life. Yeah. You know, and having success mm-hmm. in your life. Yeah, it, completely. So. Now, now you've been brought into black culture. Yes. What do you see as some of the impacts on black culture, not just from not making these three decisions, but even from the conversation of white supremacy, white privilege? Like, do you see that as having an impact at all? Yeah, absolutely. Because, I mean, when I look at this, I look at this as as a bigger picture issue. Because I look at this as um, as the left is using when I say I mean this whole narrative of white supremacy and and you know oppression and whatever it is designed by did we already cover as a um, as 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 a tool a political tool to divide and conquer America for Marxism so this ideology I mean the, the same people that are telling you that you know, uh, America's racist and systemically oppressive and whatever, they are doing this as a political weapon. It's not because they actually care. You know, someone like Nancy Pelosi and, and you know, the, the Democrats that were kneeling with the, <laughs> with the kente cloth, they're not doing that because they care about Black people. You know, all these corporations that, you know, put Black Lives Matter up, they're not doing that because they care about Black people. It's because they have a vested interest in the Marxist takeover of America. And that's the bigger picture of this. So uh, when I, so, and it has many levels as well, because what it's doing is it is taking away power from African-Americans and saying that you don't really have any power because you live in this oppressive system and you're always gonna be a victim. And these people have privilege because they're white. And when you see the, the psychological effect on that, because your beliefs is what determines your actions. And if you have a belief system that you live in this society where you can never amount to anything, that's gonna become a manifestation of your reality. So I actually think that this ideology of white supremacy and oppression is actually very dangerous to the black community. It is very dangerous. 
not only to the country, but to the black community, because it is creating a mindset. It is creating in a, and it's manifesting a reality because you have a generation of people that are being told that you, you can never amount to anything because there's this oppressive system that is keeping you back from becoming everything that you can, that you can be in life. So it, it, in my opinion, it's very destructive to anybody who actually adopts and internalizes this. And, and sadly, a lot of people do, you know, because they feel like, you know, um, the people who are propagating this narrative really care. But these are the very people that have created the very policies that have destroyed the Black community. And that's the irony of it. Girl, we gonna get some emails. We gonna get some. <laughs> I ain't even. I ain't, I ain't even lying. You know we will. You know, and I'm gonna take it the next step further. Is that? Well, and I got two things actually. Um, you know, you said several people are adopting this narrative. Mm-hmm. I, and I keep plugging this book. Um, Please stop helping us by Jason Riley. Yes, it's a great book. If you know him, girl, tell him he need to come on our show. I need to have a conversation with him. <laughs> no, I don't know him, but I read his book to the it, research of my, for my this, book, and it's amazing. It is so good. This book talks about the white liberal and, yes. and how the white liberal policies and advocacy is hurting the black community so much this propping up of the social justice narrative the propping up of victimization and oppression and basically critical race theory like overall but you know that propping up by the white liberal voice Mm -hmm. does more Mm -hmm. harm in black communities than even the black voice Yes, it is harming the black community, but it's actually helping the white liberal establishment because that's how they get power. So their power comes from keeping black people in a, in a constant grievance because that's the, that's that's Marxism. So Marxism gains its power by by grievance. That's how it works. So 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 the point is not to solve your problems. You know, the Democrats and the left are not there to solve your problems. They're there to ensure that you stay in your problems so that that grievance continues because that's what overthrows the society. So it all goes back to the Marxism issue. But yeah, like you're saying, um, you know, the the left is really has really um, implemented policies that have kept the black people down. You know, when you look at family, the destruction of the black family, that is one of the biggest things that has completely destroyed um, the black community. When you look at the fatherlessness in the black community and the things that it actually creates, you you start to see how, you know, uh, kids who are born in a home that don't have, that doesn't have a father in the home are more likely to go to prison and more likely to commit suicide and more likely to be involved in a gang. So, you know, just the cascading effect of that. And that, that is a direct result of the policies that have been implemented by the left and the Democrat party. So when you look at it, every time I've looked at all the issues that are happening within the black community, it leads, it always leads me back to Democrat policies. Mm. And the irony of it all. Now, my second point was the black church. 
Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure like what kind of church you're in, how familiar you are with, with black church, but I'm wondering your thoughts on like either the presence of the black church in a lot of these conversations um, regarding critical race theory, unity, oppression, marginalization, like the conversation that's currently being had in culture. So the presence of it or the absence of it, have you noticed either one? It might be, look different because you're in the Midwest versus us out here on the West Coast. Yeah, um, I live in the Midwest and I haven't really um, I haven't really been involved like in the black church to really see. But the way I see this narrative is that it's becoming a religion in itself. It's like this religion of blackness. And I think Jason uh, Whitlock did an amazing article about the religion of blackness. Like it's now becoming it's now replaced because when you look at African-Americans, they were very I mean, still are very spiritual. They were kind of like the spiritual leaders of this nation when it comes to Christianity and so forth. But then the left has like taken that away from the black community and now replaced it with this black identity, which has now become like a religion. Like that's who I am, not a child of God, which is, you know, what should be your entire identity, as a Christian, your identity is in Christ. Your identity should be, I am a child of God created in his image. I am, I have limitless potential, but now it's just replaced with, okay, I am, I'm black. I am oppressed. I live in an oppressive society. And it's now become like a religious, a religion in itself. And one of the things that really surprised me in researching for this book was just the amount of history, Black American history that is completely hidden from the Black community and from Mm -hmm. the people. Because when you actually look at the history post-slavery and before the the civil rights of 1965, you actually see that African Americans were thriving in uh, amazing communities. You know, because of segregation, they were forced to create their own communities, have their own uh, dental schools. You know, uh, they were creating their own theaters and, you know, they created businesses and it was baseball a, league. Sorry, what's that? Base Negro baseball leagues. I'm a baseball yeah. fan. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And all that is hidden. I mean, uh, you know, uh, Booker T. Washington had a university and the head of the Harvard University actually came and spoke at one of the commencement speeches, and he said that Booker T. Washington's university was creating more millionaires than Harvard and Yale combined. You know, so that's what was happening in that time. So, and this is at a time when systemic oppression actually existed. This is at a time when white supremacy actually existed. But you had Black people that were overcoming all of this and were living in thriving communities, creating millionaires. And one of the one of my biggest shocks was that the first woman in America to become a self-made millionaire was a black woman. Yes, she was. She was a she was a, a daughter of former slaves. So I'm like, if she can do that during a time when systemic oppression and real white supremacy existed, then you don't have an excuse in 2021 because that's just that. I mean, right there, it just says it all because 
you can't expect to live in a utopian society where injustice doesn't exist, where racism doesn't, because that's never going to happen. We live in a fallen world until Jesus Christ comes back. We're going to always live in a fallen world. But the question is, what are you going to do with your life to overcome these things? And African-Americans have been overcoming. Even today, I know a lot of successful uh, African-American people that live great lives, you know, that are not held back by oppression or racism or whatever it is. So, you know, it's it, to me, it's just a tool that is being used by the left to control the African-American community. And sadly, you know, too many African-Americans are falling for it. Now, one of the things that Monique and I are very um, passionate about and inquisitive about is entrepreneurship. So I'm glad you, mm-hmm. you brought up the example of, of that. I can't remember the, the lady's name. The, the C.J. Uh, Walker. Yes. 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 Oh. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, what lady? Yes. C.J. Walker. She <laughs> yeah. her and her hair care. That, yes. The, yeah. the black hair care. Yes. But I I would love to see more conversation in 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 around the realm of black entrepreneurship or mm-hmm. urban entrepreneurship, you know, that, that that is a better pathway out of poverty than, you know, let's get some more social programs going, you right. know, like nobody's ever going to get out of poverty because of social programs. Now that can be a stopgap for a temporary time or, you know, a crisis situation and that's mm-hmm. fine. But when mm-hmm. we start looking at situations with of able-bodied people or multi-generational welfare, I get really concerned about how damaging that is to people's souls because work is part of the created order. God has created humanity to work. And mm-hmm. and I'm just wondering, you know, if if you might comment on on your thoughts um about entrepreneurship and the role that they can have in really even changing our mindset of I can I can do some things to better my situation. Yeah, absolutely. And entrepreneurship is is something that, you know, I am definitely for because I've always had an entrepreneurial uh, spirit. You know, growing up, my mom was an entrepreneur. She was a teacher and teachers don't make very much money in, in Zimbabwe. So she wasn't just going to sit around and be a teacher. I mean, uh, on school holidays, we were getting on a train going to South Africa because she was buying stuff so that she could come back and sell it in Zimbabwe. So I just grew up around, you know, my mom taking control of her life and wanting to better her life, you know, wanting to make more money so she could send me to private school so so we could live in a better neighborhood. So she was just that person. So... I naturally had that inclination. So when I came to the United States, um, you know, I went to school, I studied business administration, and then I worked for a bank for about three years, but I wasn't happy there because I was like, you know what, I want to be like my mom who, you know, built a business and was able to live a, a much freer life and was able to make more money than, you know, just having her nine to five job. So I actually started my own business. So, um, And I started my business in e-commerce at a time when e-commerce was really becoming a thing. Uh, So needless to say, my business just like skyrocketed. I just got in at the right time. So by the time I was 27 years old, I had a business that was doing seven figures in income. I had several employees and I was literally living the American dream. 
So um, to me, entrepreneurship is truly the answer. And that's, that's what makes America unique because you can come to this country and you know have nothing like I did. And then you can start a business and really make something of yourself because you're adding value and you're creating something and you're feeling a need that some that you know people have and you're becoming successful at it. And it's and it's very rewarding. And I think that's what's missing in the conversation. Instead of telling these kids, you know, in the black community that you're oppressed and you live in this horrible country that is, you know, a white supremacist, why not talk to them about entrepreneurship? Why not talk to them about the power they have to create value in somebody else's life, to see a need that's not being filled and create something? You know, so that's that's why I find this uh, ideology very dangerous. And to me, it's very evil what the left is doing, because they are stealing people's destinies by, by teaching them that they live in this society that is out to get them and that they can never succeed. I mean, America is one of the most amazing countries you can live in where you can literally go from one class to another or even higher than that, which is something that is very unique to the United States. Some of us who come from countries where it's very hard, if you're born poor, you're, like, you're likely gonna die poor because there are no ladders of opportunities to go from one class to another. The class systems are very rigid, you know, and that's. That's true of most places in the world. But, you know, in America, there's this freedom where, you know, an opportunity where you're able to, uh, you know, to make something of yourself. So it's such a tragedy that you have people that are born here that are being told to ignore all the opportunities around them and focus on this white supremacy. And that's that's who you are and that's your identity. And that's all you're ever going to be. So I, I'm very much against it. And, and, and to me, it's just a tool of the left to control people because that's how they gain power in most societies. So I think that what I would love to see is some of these churches right now that are so like, they're just out there. They're, they're wanting to feel better about themselves. You know, it's like they're looking for a justice project. They, they want to do justice in their community. Well, here's a justice idea for you. Um, start a program in your community for how to start businesses, training mm -hmm. people on how to become entrepreneurs, how to get a vision, yeah. how to get an idea, how to start a business, how to get a business permit. I mean, whatever that is, like, if you want to help people get out of poverty, let's talk about long-term solutions. Let's not keep putting, let's not keep starting food pantries. Like, let's exactly. do something with a more long-term vision for change in your community. Let's engage in uplift based on the image of God. All right. Monique wants to say something. Okay. So I'm cool with, you know, talking about the left and the left and their policies and all that. But at some point I got to look right up in my house. You know, I have to look right at, at other black people. And I know somebody going to write me, even though I don't want to hear from you. This is a conversation that I feel like we aren't having in the black community is like, look, 
the left can come after you all day and night, but you still get to choose what you do. And so Mm -hmm. you don't, one, have to believe this. I can tell you stories from, you know, my ancestors and and my my lineage and things like that, but why not tell positive stories? What are we doing? How are we raising up the next generation? I can't look and and say, well, you know, white Republican or white liberal. I can't say that they are responsible for my destiny for the rest of my life. I can't Mm -hmm. blame them. But what happens is that when we step into the realm of blame, I then release all of my responsibility. So my poverty is not my fault because I blame you. It's now your fault that I am X, Y, and Z. If I resist a police officer, it's not my fault that I was killed. It's your fault because of white supremacy. Mm -hmm. If I don't make it past, you know, 12th grade or 10th grade because I dropped out because of X, Y, and Z, whatever the reason, that's not my fault. It's your fault. If I choose not to go to school, like what we do is we set up this narrative where blame is at the forefront and not responsibility. But see, and this is where to me, the, the Christian values truly do make a better way because it's all about your personal righteousness and personal responsibility. Yes. And we're to me, we're missing it. We're missing that in black and white communities. But since we're talking about the black community, I feel like we're missing that in the black community. I can't sit up and say white supremacy. And I know I, there was somebody on Twitter a couple months ago who said we can't talk about black abortion until we talk about white supremacy, basically, you know, Mm. what, what does, what does an abortion have to do with white supremacy? What does premarital sex or fornication, you know, or whatever have to do with white supremacy? You being white, don't tell me who I should and shouldn't sleep with and when I should and shouldn't sleep with them. You know what I mean? Like we, we've lost the plot on personal responsibility. That's my rant. Sorry. But now even those choices are my fault. I I agree. (laughs) As a white person, like I am responsible (laughs) for everything. Yes. I'm even responsible for obese black women. (laughs) And I told you I got them extra 20 pounds. (laughs) But that's a thing. I do think that's your fault. (laughs) It's it's your sister's food. That's all I can say. But this this is, but that's part of the, the growing narrative is that white, supremacy the system is responsible for everything that ills the black community but it's because we've literally taken that mentality that we had back in the renaissance time and like back in 30s 40s 50s where we were thriving yeah where we were thriving and we were responsible for ourselves Right. I wasn't looking to you. I wasn't blaming you. I, as a matter of fact, I was better off without you. Like, and right. I mean, that that isn't that isn't to be mean, but black people kind of stay to themselves, especially down in the South and stuff like that. They stay to themselves mm-hmm. and white people kind of stay to themselves. And it goes back to that um, book that you were talking about. Please stop helping. Yes. It's when the liberals started helping black people that everything started going south. And, um, you know, and then they teach this idea that you're not personally responsible for anything. You can just blame white supremacy on everything, but your choices and the things that you're doing are not your fault because your ancestors lived under under slavery and so forth. But when you look at it, everybody has, every single person of every race has that 
in their past, you know, oppression, because we live in a fallen world. You know, um, slavery that happened in the United States didn't happen in a vacuum. This was something that was happening all over the entire world. So you can't live your life with the excuse that because my ancestors went through slavery, therefore I can live my life like this and have blame everything on that. You know, because really at the end of the day, it's the it's really the choices that you make. And that's <laughs> it just comes back to that, you know, with the book that I've written. It's it's just literally the choices that you make. And obviously life can throw, you know, curveballs at you that are out of your control. But at the end of the day, it's how you take those situations and what you do with what you choose to do with those situations. And that's what it just boils down to. But, you know, that's not a conversation that is popular right now at a time when, you know, uh, everybody's looking for every excuse and nobody's responsible for anything. And this is not just in the black community. This is now in, in all communities. Yep. Nobody's responsible for anything. You look at the millennial generation, like they're just, you know, not responsible for anything. And that's just kind of and we're going away from like what you're saying you know, biblical values, because the Bible says, if you don't work, you don't eat, you know, uh, the parable of um, the talents, you know, you look at the parable of talents, this is Jesus telling the story, and he's talking about somebody who got one talent, somebody who got five talents, somebody who got 10 talents. So right there, it tells you that not everybody starts off at the same spot. You know, you may be poverty, you may be born in a certain situation, but God expects you to take that little of what you've been given and make something of it. And in that parable, what you see is that that one person who had the one talent did nothing with it and they buried it. And you know what Jesus said? He said, depart from me, worker of iniquity. He took that one talent away from that one who had one and gave it to the one who had 10, the one who had the most. So that means that you know, the whole idea of socialism and, you know, this type of coddling society that we live in, it's not biblical. You know, you have to, you're responsible for your actions and the actions that you you take have consequences and you have to live with the consequences of your life. And this is now, um, you know, uh, something that is not popular anymore to mm -hmm. talk about because we now just live in this fluffy world where everybody shouldn't be offended and everybody blames everything else besides who, what they have done and the choices they have made in their lives. So. Yeah. Sorry. I was good. just reading um, some of the comments on YouTube. Mm -hmm. Candy can too um, says. Who's Canadian by the way. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if she's actually Canadian because I thought I read something in the comments that says she was like in Jamaica. But I think she's from Jamaica, okay. but she lives in Canada. There, there you go. Yeah. Okay. So she said, even it's even worse and referring to something else, but talking about the idea of responsibility and things like that. She said, it's mm -hmm. even worse than that. When we do take on the responsibility, we like the responsibility of yourself. You are accused of self-hatred and adopting whiteness. And I think that's one of the problems with this critical race theory narrative and, and just the social justice narrative, the cultural narrative is that when I am kind, when I 
um, am responsible. When I show Res- up on respect time, authority. respect authority, I am considered to be participating in whiteness or self-loathing, not understanding my blackness, you know, all of these things. So, and, and you're kicked out of the tribe. So is this conversation really between three white people right now? Yeah. Basically. Cause we're talking about choice. That that's <laughs> what some would say. That is exactly what some would say. Like I, I think about you, I think about Candace Owens and the way that you have used your voice and your platform and the way that I've seen people come after you. And, yeah, the, and yeah. the things that they say, and it's all about, well, they, they white. They just participate mm-hmm. in their whiteness. Mm-hmm. You can't trust them. Well, the, uh, the Smithsonian came out with that list of things that they said were associated with whiteness. And they said, um, you know, being on time, uh, being personally responsible, uh, being rational, you know, all these things. And and what what came out to me with that was like, okay, this sounds like a white supremacist wrote this list. Because you're telling me that all these great qualities that actually create success <laughs> are whiteness? No. It's like a hoodwink and bamboozle. Like they really right. don't want you to do the things that will keep you alive. Like respect and authority. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's and a hoodwink and bamboozle. Um, I don't know if you guys saw this, but Chelsea Handler like sent out a tweet during, uh, you know, the police shooting. I don't remember which which one it was, but he was like, well, black people shouldn't even uh, obey police anymore. Oh, and we, we, oh, yes. We had that tweet on our show when uh-huh. Eric Muldrow was on. Yeah, and, and I'm like, yeah. I guarantee you, Chelsea Handler and white liberals are not telling their kids that they should um, they should uh, not respect police. Mm-hmm. Because you know why? Because they love their children and they understand that no matter what color your kid is, if they're not respecting police and they're not obeying what the police is asking them to do, they're going to be killed no matter yes. what you are. So because they love their children, they tell their children, hey, if the police officer tells you to give them their ID, to put your hands up, you do it. But, but then they want to tell black people that, oh, you don't have to do that. You can buck up. You know, yeah. they, they talk to you wrong. They, they say something, buck up. Buck exactly. up will get you shot. Don't buck up. You better go and, lay down. That's the thing. No matter what color you are, and I actually posted a video because there's a video um, that I posted, and it was a white man who was being stopped by police. The police told him, gave him a command, put your hands up, and instead he started reaching, and he was like, "No fool!" and like started reaching, and they shot him, and he was white. But you don't hear that story because mm-hmm. police actually shoot twice as many white people as they do black. But because the media just focuses on the ones that involve a black person and a white police officer, and that's what they spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week harping on. So it creates this perception that it's only black people that are that are going through this. And it's because they're black. No, it's because they resisted arrest. I mean, sometimes it is it's unjustified, but most of the time it's justified. And these are things that are happening to white people who are also engaging in the same behavior of resisting arrest. So it's not about the color of your skin. It's about the behavior. And if you follow the behavior, it is happening to you, no matter whether you're white, black, Hispanic, Asian, whatever color you are. If you are in a tussle with the police, they are trained to shoot you because they are also in self-defense mode. Mm -hmm. Yes. 
something that, you know, nobody wants to talk about. I mean, we had CNN. Uh, I don't know if you guys saw the the, the hidden camera that, that showed um, CNN discussing how they only focus on the black, on the shootings that involve black people in order to create a narrative and a perception. And it's sad that, you know, most people who don't follow politics or don't really follow these things, they, that's all they see. So they just see the black people that are being portrayed in the media and it's creating this perception that this is only happening to black people and it's only because they're black and that's not it. This is something that the left is doing through their media to create racial tension and it's divide and conquer. And I always go back to the Marxism because that's, that's what it is. Marxism is where you divide a nation between oppressed versus oppressor. So to tear down a nation, you have to divide the population into an oppressed uh, population and an oppressor population. And then the goal is for the oppressed population to then overthrow the system that's already there and overthrow the so-called oppressors. So that's what we're seeing. That's what we're seeing in the United States. And the media is behind it. You know, the corporations are now behind it. That's why they put all these Black Lives Matter stuff on there. And like what you were saying um, about, you know, doing things that actually help black people, they're not doing that. These corporations like Coca-Cola or whatever, they're not, they're not teaching how to uh, black kids how to start businesses. They're not building schools. Black Lives Matter is not building schools that actually educate kids. They're, the kids are stuck in these public schools where they're uh, literally being graduated, not knowing how to read and write at a third grade level. You know, so who, is anyone building schools to help them or trying to take them out of the school system? No, it's all about just the optics of, oh, we're going to put a Black Lives Matter sign on our building, or we're going to do this and do that, but nothing of substance that actually changes the life of the average Black person. And that's why it's so disingenuous. And, you know, it just exposes the left for really what they're doing, which is just an agenda for themselves for Marxism. All right, we've got a couple comments here before we wrap up with Melissa. And, and once again, um, I want to make sure to give a shout out to her book, uh, Choice Privilege. We've been talking about a lot of choices yeah. tonight <laughs> as a big theme on the uh, show. And I know we're not going to get to it because of time, but when you get the book, read God Privilege, God's Privilege. Like, oh, yeah, good stuff. <laughs> All right, we'll, we'll leave that as a teaser. Okay. Uh, let's see. Josie says over on the CFBU Facebook page, she says, I do think there's a widespread problem with lack of personal responsibility these days. Certainly not limited to the black community. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. That is a mm -hmm. becoming quickly becoming a cultural value, which is extremely sad. Um, you know, we are always trying to talk about, you know, uplift and, and, you know, responsibility and how that is the pathway to success. So mm -hmm. definitely don't want to make it seem like that's just a, a problem in minority communities. We also don't want to imply that minority communities don't work hard. We think they yeah. absolutely work hard. Yeah, absolutely. And, yeah. and it, there's so many good success stories. We just want to highlight like more of that, you know, and, yes. and of, of because we actually believe in human dignity and what people are truly capable of. It just grieves our heart. That we that our government often sends messages and our culture sends messages to people 
to make them be satisfied with less than God created them to be. Yeah, That's you, the grievance of our heart. You don't need to get married right. because you can get on welfare. You don't need to work because you can get X, Y, and Z. Like there's this program for you. You don't, and I mean, these are things that we see even before the fall, yeah. you know? So they're part of God's created order and yet government steps in and then kind of subverts the the created order for how yeah. things should be. Yeah. Right. Jeremy says on YouTube, he says, Monique, so many of the values attributed to whiteness are found in the book of Proverbs, which was not written to white supremacists. By white supremacists. By white supremacists. <laughs> Sorry. It's so true. So he's talking about like wealth and yeah. wealth building, saving um, you know, thinking of the future, um, not fornicating. These are all big themes, choosing your friends well. Like yeah. just go do a study sometime in a book of Proverbs on choosing your friends well. Like that is a big theme. The Proverbs is like the book of wisdom for middle schoolers. <laughs> so should be like how we are teaching our middle schoolers, how to manage your money, stay out of debt, you know, choose your friends well. Um, don't fornicate. These are the themes. So mm -hmm. very good. All right. Well, Melissa, thank you, Melissa. Thank you. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. Go ahead. Thank you so much for coming on and hanging out with us tonight. We so appreciate it. This has been awesome. Well, it was awesome. It was great to talk to you guys. You too. So much good information. Everyone go and get choice privilege by Mrs. Melissa Tate. Yes, there it is. And What's race got to do with it? An intellectual, biblical, and experiential rebuttal to critical race theory. Yeah, and I mean, theory. The, yes. the, the conversation or, or what you write in the book about like the fallacy of white privilege. Mm -hmm. You know, this, this is a, it needs like a part A and a part B. <laughs> That's good, good yes. stuff. So, yeah, so good. Thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. It's well, thank you. you so much for having me. It was great talking to you, ladies. Thank you. You have a good night. Take All right. Care. You too. Bye-bye. Bye -bye. All right. Yeah. Melissa Tate, ladies and gentlemen. The book is really good. Yeah. Really, really good. So. I can't right. believe that she even knew who we were. She she reached out to us. Uh, she, I was like, oh, Melissa Tate. <laughs> really? Yeah. She's awesome. That was really good. That was really good. Yeah excited for that conversation all right let's keep going all right so this week you did a thing i did a couple days ago a couple days ago good thing <laughs> uh monique wrote a blog post i did and it is about kind of in the big picture let's get the big picture first is is looking at issues facing christian colleges mm -hmm. um and how ideas of critical theory are coming into Christian colleges. Now we did a, a whole show about this last November. With Dr. Corey Miller. With our friend, Dr. Miller. Great show. People should go check that out. And you've also though written a series of blogs regarding issues that you see at Biola specifically. Well, I try to use Biola there. as a test yeah. case, but it's, it's because it's the one I know yes. the most. I'm but not trying to pick on applicable Biola. Applicable to yeah. all of them is what I was going to say. Yeah. yeah. It, it definitely is because this is, Biola is just the one that I know the most. It's the one that is near and dear to my heart. I'm a three-time graduate. We're a three-generation family of Biola. Like we're super invested in the school. Mm-hmm. 
And I love Biola. And yet I feel like, you know, been trying to sound the alarm now for, gosh, almost a year, nine, 10, 11 months, um, just trying to sound the alarm. But also at the same time, having tons of conversations. We had more conversations this week with Biola staff, faculty. Yeah. It's it's rough. Mm -hmm. So I did a thing. Go ahead. Yeah. So you did a blog post mm -hmm. about one particular issue. So Bob's going to put it up here on the screen. When critical social theory moves into your kids' Christian college dorm. Mm -hmm. So why did you write this post? And we'll let people go read it and they read the particulars. But what made you write this post? Well, it was brought to my attention that... And it was brought to both of our attention that um, there was a dorm at Biola and the dorm had a women's month like display in the elevator. And, you know, some of the people listed, you know, to celebrate during Women's History Month were like Amelia Earhart, um, not Madam C.J. Walker. Who was the other one that was like, all right. Shirley uh, Chisholm. Shirley Chisholm. And then, then there was um, Patricia Velasquez, who was the first lesbian, like supermodel, supermodel, but like like out lesbian. Um, and then there was not, I completely forget this Laverne Cox. I think. Yeah, Laverne Cox, which um, is the first transgendered person to be nominated for an Emmy. I don't think um, he actually actually won mm -hmm. um but was nominated for the emmy i could be wrong maybe maybe um it was awarded but anyway this was in the dorm as people that should be celebrated now that there was, didn't there was a qr code that well just i mean even yeah. before we talk about the qr code like the lesbian and the transgender person i was like oh i didn't know that by that was in line with biola's values that these are the women that we celebrate and so we are, uh, and I'm gonna leave it there because I have a whole bunch of thoughts about that. But there was a QR code, and um, we were sent pictures of this display. And so I just opened the QR code. Um, yeah. So it said and, and took scan a for resources. Yes. So we scanned for the resources, and the resources were articles like you know, one of them went to like the Biola sexuality, statement. yeah, sexuality yeah. statement. Another one went to a human, not human Q, rights. Q, uh, one of them was to a Christianity Today article. Mm -hmm. One of them was to the human rights campaign. That's what I'm thinking, Which is rights. a secular organization that tries to lobby for gay marriage and other LGBTQ political things. It's, mm -hmm. it's a very um, gay affirming mm -hmm. uh, lobby. And, and then the last one was about a transgendered person and coming out and how do we, support you know, them. support transgendered people. And so I thought that was extremely interesting that, you know, this is, these are the lists of resources that Biola is putting out. Now people will say, well, Biola didn't put that out. Well, a student hung it up. A, well, I would say even before we get to the student conversation, that this is being hung publicly in Biola's dorm elevator. Yeah. To say that Biola's not putting it out is a little skewed. I would say that 
the person who's responsible for this dorm and this elevator should be also held responsible for what is put up. And it was up for a month. It was up for a month. How do you run the dorm and not know what's being put up? If something is in my office, I am, even if I didn't put it up, it's my office. And so I am now responsible. I should be looking and having my eye out and knowing what's going on. So I do think that the, the RD is partly, you know, responsible. Now, we did the article and Biola reached out to me and stated, you know, that they took the article, they took the display down within an hour of... 24 hours. Yeah, within 24 hours, thank you, of... Apparent complaint. Yes. So there's that. After and it had been up for a month. After it had been up for a month, yes. But they they, they came to me and said, you know, you sh- that I sh- needed to, like, not retract my, my article, but definitely make it known that they took it down within 24 hours. And I'm like, you know, okay, that's fair. You know, and and I, in my article, I did say that someone told me that the situation had been handled, but I didn't understand what handled meant. And if handled was just like, we took it down, but there's no other conversation. I don't know technically that that's really handled. So fast forward, they reach out to me. We handled it in 24 hours. You need to, you should say this. So, we, so added, we added we added a statement that says, you know, it was brought to our attention. Biola actually took it down within 24 hours. Kudos to them. After Thank it you. had been up for a month. After it had been up for a month, they took it down within 24 hours. Thank you very much. The email that I got, though, really blamed the students, the resident assistants, and not necessarily the RD. And so I pushed back. And I haven't received a response back because it was late on a Friday. But, you know, we can't just expect that we can just blame the students one, but two, the website that the QR code linked to was in the RD's name. And so I don't know how much blame I can put on a 19, 20 year old when the website is linked to the RD. It makes me ask the question, well, did the students make the website in the RD's name without the RD's knowledge? However, I feel like all of these things take a back seat to the issue of discipleship, to the issue of what is truly being professed at Biola. Because the, 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 the narrative from the public relations office mm-hmm. is, well, a student did this. They're just mimicking the world. This was the this is the the explanation. Yes. But your position is, well, wait a minute. What about the adult in charge? Yes. Okay. So, yes, what about the adult in charge? But even on a bigger scale, like Viola's worried about the fact that I didn't mention their time schedule of 24 hours. After it was up for a month. After it was up for a month. Why is no one concerned about the fact that someone at their university who is paid and in leadership thought that these were resources in line with the ethos of the university? Why is no one asking that question? Why is no one saying after a month of this being on display, we really need to sit this dorm hall down at least and say this is the true vision for, you know, marital unity and sexuality? Why is no one asking the question, is this are the critical social theories really a problem at Biola? If you can have someone basically promoting queer theory on their website, the normative, you know, sexual relations of, of homosexuality and things like that. And, and more moving away from the normative relations of heterosexuality. 
why is no one talking? Why isn't that a problem? Why are you coming to me and saying, amend your article to say that we took it down within 24 hours instead of amend your article because we have sat this person down because we, you know, we realize that this is an issue. The priorities, I would say, of the person who wrote me are definitely out of order. I also feel like after having conversations with several people at Biola, I can basically unequivocally say that the critical social theories are an issue at Biola. The person who wrote me, I also have had several conversations with where they've admitted that we have had issues with the critical social theories at Biola. So now why are you emailing me? Through hiring. Yes. Why are you emailing me like you surprised? Why are you emailing me like it's a new day? Like, oh my gosh, like we took this down in 24 hours. Amend your article to show that. Why not say we are grieved? We You want to talk about lament and repent? They had a grief. They have a grieving statement, though, this week about the the um, verdict. Chauvin. Yeah. Yeah. That was last week or two weeks ago. Yeah. But I think your point is this hung up publicly. Shouldn't there be a public statement of lament yes. and grief we'll over over you know discipling these young people okay the young their, their explanation is yet these young people are mimicking the world mm-hmm. that's their explanation no and i and, think these young people are mimicking what they are learning at biola so you have a different theory of that yes i believe that what is being portrayed and put forth at Biola. The young people are learning. They are hearing as being okay. And they are now mimicking what they're receiving in their Christian university, which brings me to this topic of lament and repent. This is uh, an, an idea that one is biblical, but that we see being pushed forward by many Christian social justice people. We need to lament for our complicity in racism. We need to repent of whiteness, repent of white supremacy. We as Christians lament and repent are very biblical ideas. As Christians, we should be repenting of allowing these critical social theories to indoctrinate our young people. We have gone astray. And and you whether you agree with me or not, I'm just going to put my thought out here. We have allowed without much fight critical race theory, critical social theory, not not just critical race theory, the critical social theories to come into Christian institutions, churches, universities, and we we haven't fought very hard. We should lament the way that our young culture is going, the way that young people are going. To me, if Biola wants to hold a repent and lament session, this would be the perfect time because you allowed something to be up for a month and now now to me and then silently removed it then you silently removed it though even though and even though they silently removed the display the website was still up until that blog went out another month later a month later that blog that website was never taken down they should repent for leading kids astray and they should lament because it breaks god's heart in my personal opinion that we would not just you know, offer kids different, different narratives like, hey, you know, maybe this or hey, Mary, maybe that. But that we would put one frame of thought forward and then shame them into believing it and then tell them if you don't believe it, you are this or you are that. And that this way is the way of Jesus. And I'm just wondering what the long term impact of of 
Christian college culture is on, in particular, on on both students of color and white students, like how much of the white shaming narrative are young white students being discipled into, into accepting? You know, how much of that are they ingesting? And what is the long-term impact of that on them emotionally? Well, go ahead, sorry. And what is the long-term impact on the students of color that are being told that they're just they're just victims. I think that that if you wanted to have a conversation about complicity, you know, it, it's much different for me to talk about complicity of like my ancestors, but this is something with people that are directly involved in decision making and choices and hiring and policies and procedures. These people have direct involvement in how these these young people are being discipled. I don't think they're complicit. You don't I, think they're complicit? No, because complicit to me means like we just went along with it. Like it, it, we just kind of. Well, what would be the right word then? Intentional. They're responsible, directly yes. responsible. Yes. There are some at Biola that I can say you are directly responsible. Now, some are complicit and, you know, for whatever reason, don't use their voice or, you know, have their own thoughts about it. But some are intentional and do things very intentionally. But I do agree with your point. Like, what is the long-term effects on white kids? What are the long-term effects on black kids? What are the 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 long-term effects on all the other ethnicities that aren't talked about because they're not black or white? In the body of Christ, we don't that, that that's exactly why we are one in the body of Christ. Hmm. But yeah, Biola tried to come for me, y'all. And and yeah, so I did respond and I, I basically said a lot of what I just said right now. They, you come in after me, but you got bigger things that you need to be worried about. But there's, there, I think that many Christian universities are very committed for the sake of their donors, their alumni, mm-hmm. the parents, mm-hmm. to put out a public image of we are standing strong to preserve the faith. Here's our doctrinal statement. Here's our, here's our bona fides. You know, here's our here's our doctrinal statement. We're standing strong against the secular culture. But what you're implying or asserting, in in your opinion, is that there is something else happening behind the scenes. Yes. That is it. Would you call it deceptive? Would you call it an act of deception of potential students? Yes, I would say if if. If schools like Biola said, we have not adopted the critical social theories. Or they won't take a position on it. Yeah. Or they won't take a position on it. Or if everything is a, oops, we didn't know. How did this happen? Yeah. So so everything can't be a oops. You grown. Like everything. Like if if you were 19, sure. It was a oops. I didn't know. But at some point, like I hold a toddler more responsible, I feel like, than what many people are holding some of our Christian institutions to. Everything's not a oops. Every it's just not. And yet, I, but there's there's a, there's a there's a narrative in the Christian. We get these letters, Monique, that that parents are like, well, I wrote in, I complained. The letter I got back was it's just a mis- some version of it's misunderstanding. It was a rogue student. It was one rogue staff person we have written what seven pieces on biola i don't know i want to say it's about seven 
pieces on Biola, we've had at least seven to 10 conversations with senior leadership. Oh, more than that. Yeah. I, I don't believe that it's a oops. Now, if you as a parent want to send- At what point send, is it a pattern? It, exactly. But if, if you as a parent, you know, know these things and you continue to just say, well, you know, it was just a oops, then you believe what you want to believe. Like at some point, I feel like if you want to be the person with your head in the sand, then be the person with your head in the sand. I think I, and that want, might be rude. They want to believe that it's not as bad as what you're saying. Yes. They want they, to they, believe, they, they want to believe you're exaggerating. You're just a dramatic, you're being dramatic. And, and I think that what's difficult is that in the conversations you and I have with senior level leadership, they're all like, you can't tell anyone. Um, Uncle Jeff, the board, <laughs> a lot of the board of directors at Biola is, are, you know, struggling with this themselves. Like sympathetic, sympathetic to CRT. Again, you, if all the evidence is put out before you, if, if there's a, like so many things that are put out before you, if you want to continue to say this can't be that bad. No, it really isn't. Then, but and you send your child there, and they come home woke. Don't come to me. But those I'm are sorry. The, those I, are the like, letters we're getting is my child went to fill in the blank Christian college. They used to be a very lovely, pleasant person when they left. Now they've come home. Mm -hmm. They're angry. They barely talk to me. They call me a racist. Mm -hmm. This is common. We get these letters all the time, and nobody wants to believe it. So I talked to the parents of young impressionable seniors in high school they're about to send their kids they're so excited they're sending them to christian college and it's like i i don't want to always be that person it says please don't do this please please i i know you think your kid can outsmart this but this is an exhausting road and the like nobody's this strong like it is so incredibly hard and yeah, everyone thinks like, well, it won't happen to my kid. And then we, we get the letters of the parents on the other end of after four years of Christian college, here's this, the state that my daughter, my son, my nephew, my niece are in now. Mm -hmm. And we get those letters all the time. And it's hard because this stuff is really hard to publicly document because residents life, what happens in residents life dorms isn't public. It's, it's not public and people don't understand how much influence the resident director has on your child. Yeah. Yeah, it, I don't know. I, I am. Are they gaslighting? I never know what that word means. So I don't know. Unfortunately, so many have imbibed CRT so much that, wait, sorry. Unfortunately, so many have imbibed CRT so much that any question is seen as contrarian, sorry, aggressive and unsubmissive. I agree completely, Joy. Like you can't question this narrative. And if you do, they'll, they'll, they'll they won't address what you're really talking about. They just want to talk about your tone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> or the fact that you didn't mention that they took the post down in 24 like hours. Like some quibble over some little detail that, you know, it's like, well, what about the big picture here? Like, there is something dreadfully amiss here, you know? So we just want to encourage you, like, I guess my first encouragement is, like you're always saying, Monique, is, is use your voice, your vote, your dollar. If you're a parent thinking of sending your kid to a Christian college, 
I, 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 I'm not trying to tell you how to run your life, but I'm kind of begging you, like, it's, it's a dangerous, it's a risky decision. Let me put it that way. I'm trying to be diplomatic. It's, it's a risky decision. And um, this stuff is everywhere. And hey, we are walking by faith. Like we are trusting the Lord for five Christian colleges Mm -hmm. to come find us. Come find us. We will help you. We have two, I think. We have two. And we can't wait to tell you who they are. We got to get some things in place first and agreements and that kind of thing. But we we are trusting the Lord to bring five Christian colleges to us so that we can tell all of you what what some good options are. But as of right now, it is bleak out there. And, um, you know, in it's it, this is I'm in this with you. It's a tough road. But um, this stuff is a cancer. It is a spiritual cancer and it is a cancer in our families and in our churches and you know, we've got to stand up and, and resist. And if that means that for a while we have to keep our kids out of these schools to try to get their attention by just not paying the tuition and, mm-hmm. and, and making enrollments fall. If, if Biola, here's my plea, Biola, because I know you guys watch our show. You know they do. They, they watch our content. You know they do. I'm begging you, take a stand to throw out critical social theories out of Biola, we will help your enrollment problem. We will help you. We will be the biggest brand ambassadors you have ever seen. We will recruit the heck for your school. We will put it out there. We are asking you, we are begging you, please take a firm stand, do something make a big move dbc i know you watch our content do something courageous fire some people do something different please biola has a history of of standing up against modernism and the creep of modernism that's the whole roots of the school this is your moment this is your moment stand up against the modernism that is coming in to the school right now live up to the legacy of the school five school five five christian college presidents i am asking the lord we are asking the lord send us five Christian college presidents who want to stand up and stand against the grain and and you're willing to trust the Lord and 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 be canceled and you are willing to do something different come on call us message us presidents we've got two of you who are talking to us we're trusting the Lord to bring five more five Christian college presidents can change this it, you will inspire others to have courage. Come on. Come on. Oh, there was that. <laughs> there was that. Go ahead. All right. Well, We're done. We are. I, um, 
don't know. I will. I'll, I was gonna sip my coffee. I think, um, you know, I think that the Lord will bring them, and I think that you know, I'm I'm hopeful, even in the midst of the the crazy, and even in the midst of um, you know, what it looks like. I think to the natural eye, mm. because it from to the natural eye, it doesn't look that good. Um, but I am hopeful. And I do think that God will bring something fruitful out of, you know, all of the muck that is, is prevalent and present right now. But with that, are you ready to, I think we're done. All right. No Mo's moment tonight. We're just going to go ahead and save that for next week. What's Mo's moment? All right, you guys. All right. We thank you so much for watching us. Please, if you haven't already, go and like our Facebook pages. There's the Center for Biblical Unity, Theology Mom, and all the things. We will be posting and sharing and then share our content with the world. We will see you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening to All the Things. Be sure to subscribe to our website at allthethingsshow.com and find us on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or wherever you stream your podcast. Be sure to hit that subscribe button and the bell so you'll receive alerts when we post new shows. We'll see you next week.